Welcome to the Theater of the Midnight Sun, the 21st century stage for stories, with your host and writer, Michael McGee. This is Michael McGee, and at this venue you'll hear stories of mystery, history, fantasy, farce, sci-fi, spy-fi, the everyday, and the absurd. And pretty much all will be performed by a bunch of regular Joes, just friends and colleagues who in their mild-mannered day jobs are everything from accountants to winery consultants. None of whom, including your host, have a day of experience on the stage, and boy does it show. So hold on tight for the next story on this, The Theater of the Midnight Sun. Having agreed to help his brother-in-law Petey and Baltimore Police Sergeant Tehackett investigate a bizarre death, reluctant Detective Nab encounters an even stranger case in Episode 2 of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. After some not-so-significant sleep, I spent another fruitless day at my government office job, working to decrypt some satellite intelligence codes that was, for me, turning into the vocational equivalent of being tarred and feathered. One of the department heads, a fellow named Hempstead, who'd had it in for me for years, had purposely dropped the notorious project on my desk, knowing it was pretty much impossible. Subtle nastiness of this sort had arisen soon after I'd started my job, noticing my perspicacity, shall we say, the chief director had bumped me to a higher level shortly after my hire, causing me to leapfrog several others with seniority, including the tubby Hempstead, who ever since had made it his personal mission in life to discredit me whenever possible, citing any unprofessional behavior, like my occasional grogginess. He was not alone in the department. It was a jealousy thing, I suppose, my talents not being much liked by most of my co-workers, who saw me as unwanted competition, not as part of the team. Intelligence was appreciated, of course, but too much you got you branded a show-off. In truth, I was exactly the opposite, being far more of an introvert than I ever wanted to be. So, trying to shake off my sleepiness that day, I spent lunch with my head down at my desk, only to wake up with a couple of paper clips ironed to my cheek just as Hempstead happened by. Not pretty. I arrived home around 6 p.m., having just enough time to scarf down my dinner before Petey and Tehackett swung by to snatch me up. I really did not want to go, sensing deep down it would somehow mean more trouble for me at work, but I couldn't turn them away either. I knew they needed my help. The patrol car pulled out into the dreary rush hour slog, a metal grill dividing me from T and my brother-in-law Petey in the front seat along with an ultra-thin and ultra-strong sheet of the new police-developed Metzen glass. Apparently not the soundproof kind. So, Sarge, where are we headed? Off to another apartment complex tonight? A house, actually. Out in the Carroll Park area. If we ever make it, stupid traffic. Come on, T, how about it? <sighs> Fine. Pardon us a moment, Nab. T flipped on the car's siren. Sorry, unnecessary expedient. I had to admit it was a bit thrilling, like being on a rocket and being king, too. The traffic parting before us, no questions asked. I could just imagine why Petey liked it. For him, it was probably like being a dog with its head stuck out the window. Soon enough, we were whizzing through the downtown streets, 
affording us a tiny but oh-so-speedy tour of the city as a result. To my way of thinking, that was probably the best way of seeing Baltimore nowadays. The city had lost much of its charm the last 40 years, or at least in the non-affluent areas. The most modern buildings were often little more than dull facades now, about as drab and uninspiring as the soulless factories and office buildings of the former Soviet Union ages back. But Baltimore was hardly an exception in this area. Of the other cities I'd visited lately, there seemed a regular drought on civic improvement, architectural and otherwise. Just the same, few people seem to mind these days, the idea of bigger and better being a forgotten motto. For me, the urban blah look was just further excuse to hole up in my apartment, cushioning myself with the more beautiful things in life, like an interior design self-styled after folks like Mies van der Rohe and Jean-Michel Frank, with the wry character portraits of Grant Wood on my walls and the lushly romantic illustrations of Howard Pyle. And even more pervasive, the old-time tunes of Gershwin, Cole Porter, Irving Berlin, and their contemporaries, played by band leaders like Paul Whiteman and Jimmy Dorsey in scratchy old recordings, from a time when melody was more pure and uncluttered. I'd collected a couple thousand old vinyl 78s to while away the evenings, even a few ancient wax cylinders from the first pioneering days of recording, each roll like a tiny tin can phone linking me to the artisans of an earlier age. An age I wish I belonged. I suppose it was a toss-up as to whether my apartment was gilded cage or personal sanctuary, but whatever the case, it afforded me peace of mind. My own tranquility base. After clearing the logjam and winding our way into a deeper suburbia, Tea quieted the siren. My ears were smarting a bit, and I put a finger in one as if to massage away the pain. As to where we're headed, Nab, don't know if you heard, but last week there was some trouble with an elderly fellow in his late 70s. The gentleman came out of retirement just long enough to commandeer our radio station by way of a double-barrel rifle. Here in Baltimore? Station WLOZ. The gentleman's name was Ham, ironically enough. Hadn't heard anything about it. Happened in the early AM. One of your angrier Grey Panthers? Anything but, according to his neighbors. So what happened? The fellow holed himself up in the main broadcast booth. The studios have soundproof rooms, double thick walls. The place is like a fortress, which didn't help us any. He took one of the late night tape jockeys hostage, just a college girl who'd been running satellite feeds, and held her at gunpoint while he commenced his own broadcasts, ranting about the evils of, um, slavery and the necessity of abolitionists. Huh. Must have been some broadcast. Oh, and that's just the beginning. The other stuff he was spouting even made less sense. Like? Well, for one thing, he kept going on about the noble virtues of some guy named David Stevenson, who apparently died back in the 1960s and Ham kept ranting about how this Stevenson fellow had been completely innocent of the crime he was convicted of. Which was? The rape and murder of a young female colleague. Lovely. I let the Stevenson name tumble about in my head a bit. It felt familiar for some reason, and not simply because of the murder charge. Just the same, I couldn't place it. Though our senior was in his 70s, 
and had even brought a cane with him, he still proved a handful. He kept threatening that if they cut the station's power, or funneled the broadcast off into another studio, he'd kill the girl, whom he kept sweetly calling his John Brown Queen. Interesting. Senility, you think? Ham may have been unbalanced, but he was pretty damn lucid on every other count. And he wasn't stupid either. He opened the radio feed on the board in front of him to make sure he was really on the air and stayed on the air. The old geese must have known there was no way out for him. Pretty much a suicide run. Well, whatever he was expecting, he planned to champion his beliefs before he went, strange as they were. And? Well, we finally busted in after about an hour of his one-man radio show. Before he could target the girl or take a shot at us, we had to take him down. Had no choice. It was a bloody mess. In fact, the girls expected to be in therapy for God knows. Well, that makes for a fine after-dinner story, T. Doesn't do my stomach any good either, Nab. That's why I'd like some answers. Ham's home turned out to be in an older, less dreary area of town. To hack it pulled up in front of the house, and we walked in past the police tape, the neighbors peeking at us from their windows. The place was a four-bedroom ranch house where, as T explained, Ham had lived by himself, his wife apparently having died some years back. It looked like your typical retirement nest, really, a comfortable house to while away the golden years. Ham himself had been a thin fellow, rather friendly and outgoing, a talker. He'd had a hip surgery six months before, and from what everyone knew, he'd spent his days since then convalescing. I popped in a chair lazy caramel, offering one to T and Petey as we reached the front stoop. T declined, looking somber. To hack it unlocked the door, and I walked in to find Ham's place fully furnished. Your run-of-the-mill dwelling, smelling of old in a cardigan, mothballs, and dentures sort of way. It was pretty much spotless inside, too, as if the maid had been there just that day. In the main area of the house, I found a relaxing and ultra-comfy living room. Outside, a hummingbird feeder, wrapped by tender breezes, was gently banging against the big bay window that looked out onto the backyard. All seemed in order. In fact, I would have loved to retire to a little homestead like this myself. T, I thought you said this was just like Megan's place. I said it was similar. Could have fooled me. So what's the problem? Well, you're a history buff, right? That's one of my interests. I do a lot of reading. When I'm not on call. Right, Petey? What? Strangely enough, it helps me with my desk job. It's inspiring knowing the difficulties so many others faced before me, and how they overcame them. Like at Bletchley Park. Yes, like at Bletchley Park, Petey. Well, we are the Enigma Boys, right, Nab? I shook my head the tiniest bit, closing my eyes. I should have never told Petey and the others about the Bletchley Park team. Ever since then, Enigma had become the nickname of the department, succeeding only in giving them, Petey especially, a greater desire to drag me along on their more baffling outings to make the name official. I felt like the Dalmatian on a fire truck. For me, history helps put things into perspective, T. 
Well, then maybe you can help us put this into perspective, Professor. What's this? The garage. T flipped on the lights. The car was gone, likely impounded from the radio station grounds. But I forgot it was a garage pretty quickly anyway. Posters, pictures, paintings, and banners plastered the walls. All part of a glorious shrine devoted to the abolitionists of yore. And most specifically, lay preacher John Brown, who'd led a raid on the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry back in 1859, with the idea of pulling a Spartacus and arming the slaves. What had been ancient history, however, was no longer. While some of the posters were authentic and yellowed, torn and taped, other prints Ham had apparently fashioned himself, whether with markers or a paintbrush. Pictures overlapped one another till not an inch of space remained on the walls. And yet the fanaticism never strayed outside the garage, as though it were meant to be hidden away. In some spots, his quaint homage got a little strange though. In one corner was a makeshift mannequin of Brown himself, complete with a high crown of black hair, thick black eyebrows, and a frayed old Kentuckian tie from the time, knotted about a tall, stiff white shirt collar. An ancient lock of hair was taped to the back of the mannequin's head on top of a paltry wig. I looked at some of the slogans Ham had painted over the banks of posters, the words so large they looked more fit for a billboard. Things like, Long live the League of the Gileadites, and Thanks be to the Secret Six. Both groups had been instrumental in the Underground Railroad and the anti-slavery movement. I shook my head, picking up a pair of ancient manacles off a workbench. Brother, I don't get it, T. Why go off the deep end about something that doesn't even matter anymore? It's like he actually believed slavery and the abolitionist movement were still underway. Yeah, mm-hmm. I blinked a few times, trying to think if I'd heard of any rare mental condition, say, akin to a kind of compartmentalized dementia that could have prompted such behavior. Ham's knowledge on the subject had apparently been immense. Must have taken a lifetime to collect all this stuff, T. Not really. From what we can tell, these are all recent acquisitions. How recent? Within the last month. You're joking. When we got here, some of the paint on the posters hadn't even dried yet. That's what I meant about the two being similar, Nab. Petey pulled out the little database scanner from the sling around his shoulder and started reading off a list of the various items in the room. The worn-out tie, a pair of antique pistols, one of Brown's old Bibles, most of them purchased over the last few weeks. Then, he started listing the ones that had been stolen something which had involved a string of robberies and break-ins in various cities around the country. One of the items was the lock of hair, Brown's, which had been pilfered in the middle of the night from a tiny museum in Osawatomie, Kansas. T, wait a second, L let me get this straight. Ham goes through hip replacement surgery a half year ago, and only a few months later our bubbly senior is out breaking into museums? I'd say that shows just a little determination. What was his criminal record like, anyway? He didn't have one. Come again? This way, Professor. What? Tour's not over yet. What, are all the other back rooms like this, T? No, just one. I let Tahackett lead the way. T 
took us to the basement and a large fruit cellar, its outer door thick and unwieldy. We walked in, the air inside feeling damp and overly cool. Tehackett fumbled with a tiny chain cord attached to a bare bulb overhead. When the light finally snapped on, it revealed a room about 30 feet by 10 feet in dimension, with a desk and chair against one wall. Holy mother. On the wall opposite me were painted the words, Death to the Niggers. On another was a picture of Ulysses S. Grant, his face slashed countless times. A row of tailor's dummies lined the back of the room, draped in white robes and pointed white caps, all of it beautifully displayed and perfectly preserved as part of their own little shrine to the Ku Klux Klan. Covering the rest of the walls were images of burning crosses, of men in the same white robes, of gatherings in the South, and of the great seal of the KKK and its coat of arms, showing two blacks cowering beneath two whites who stood triumphant above them. Nearest me, next to the door, was a piece of paper, framed, a series of questions beneath its glass. Question 1. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Radical Republican Party? Did you belong to the Federal Army during the late war and fight against the South during the existence of the same? And so on. Following the Civil War, they had been the questions asked of those who wanted to join the Klan. And next to each question on the sheet was the word NO, scribbled in large, enthusiastic letters. Ham had gone and answered the questions himself and then framed it all afterwards as if proof of his acceptance into their inner sanctum. Before you asked Nab, Ham was never a member of the KKK, at any time. In fact, from what we could find out, none of his neighbors or friends was aware he had any interest in the Klan, or John Brown and the old anti-slavery movement for that matter. I tried to let T's words sink in, but the whole thing had shook me more than I would have ever guessed. Sorry, Nab. I, I forgot. Oh, not, not a problem, T. I tried to dismiss it all. Just the same, I could feel myself trying to keep my hands from shaking a bit in front of T. After all, I was half Asian and half black, with sprinklings of just about everything else besides. When you got down to it, I guess I was a mutt more than anything, to the point where, in moments alone, I felt undefinable inside. But out on the streets, people always noticed black the most in me. So, out on the streets, I did too. Petey, meanwhile, had put one of the white sheets over his head, looking out the little eye holes and trying unsuccessfully to get the point at its top to stand erect. How do I look, Nab? Oh, it's definitely you, Petey. Give me that. I snatched it off his head, mostly to get it off him, but also to take a closer look at it. It seemed older than it should have, and I turned the sheet's inside edge back. Underneath were letters written in black. D.S. But Nab, what did Ham have against that guy? President Grant? Yeah, why well, slash up his picture? Ulysses S. Grant was one of the first people to take measures to abolish the Klan. 
but in the end, it didn't do much good. By the 1920s, the clan had become incredibly strong, numbering over 4 million members until... Wait a second. That's why the name David Stevenson had sounded familiar. The one Ham had been ranting about at the station? The KKK had grown incredibly strong until one of the Grand Dragons was convicted of second-degree murder in the rape and death of a young female associate. The guy's name was David Stevenson. D.S. The same initials as on our lovely little nightcap here. And ever since Stevenson's sensational trial and conviction, the Klan had been on the decline, or at least until its more minimized second coming, which began in the 1950s at the start of the Civil Rights Movement. Interesting. T, were any of these items stolen as well? Some of them, but all the thefts predate what's in the garage by a couple of months. Huh. So is this everything, or did you take some of it to the station as evidence? Only some of the stolen items. Didn't think there was a need to bring in anything else from the house right now. And what a house. I'll second that. I was beginning to think that, like Bletchley Park, I was going to need my own Colossus computer to come up with any answers to the things I'd seen the last 24 hours. In fact, I was beginning to worry that I might just let the boys down on this particular case. Because I sure wasn't coming up with anything close to the kind of quote-unquote quality thought that they were expecting. I chewed on another Cherlyzy caramel to help me think, crunching down pretty quick to the drop of chocolate at its center. Sounds funny, I know, a grown man eating candies all the time, but I love them just the same. Hard to imagine a day going by without feeling their quaint little cardboard box in my pocket. They were like an extension of me now, a natural fit, to the point where I'd partake of their caramely goodness, whether relaxing at home with a good book, or out on some horrific blind date set up by my sister. So what do you think, T? Ham was suffering from a split personality? Some strange bipolar condition we've never heard of? There was nothing about it in his medical records. No suggestion of dementia, even? No, only asthma and Addison's disease. Hmm, my grandmother had Addison's. Pretty rare and not fun. But it sure doesn't do anything like this to you. Hammond also been having problems with his prosthetic hip, too. Apparently very painful. Really? Hmm. Excuse me a second, T. Where you going, Nab? Just want to check something, Petey. I started back up the stairs, T and Petey tailing me, then crossed through the living room, heading for another corner of the house. I found the old man's bedroom and walked in, T watching me. The dresser inside was tidy on top, adorned with pictures of Ham and his wife, as well as some of her things, lockets, a jade jewelry box. I checked the nightstand. On its top was a bottle of Tylenol and a box of tissues. I rifled through the drawers. Nothing significant. The bathroom adjoined the room, and I went in and opened the medicine chest. Inside was a bottle of laxatives, toenail clippers, toothpaste, toothbrush, a tube of Bengay, and elements of a shaving kit. The black marble of the sink was just as clean and tidy as the rest of the house. I nodded to myself, and then started searching in earnest, going back into the bedroom and rummaging through the drawers of the nightstand. In the bottom drawer, I found a plain white envelope, and inside the envelope, 
was the same strange white business card I'd found at Megan's clutter department. Again, completely blank. Underneath it were papers, forms of some sort, with scribblings on their edges. From my pocket, I dug out the card I'd found at Megan's place. What's that, Dab? Oh, sorry, T. I uh, uh, swiped this last night from Megan's place. I suppose, technically, it was part of the trash. Public property, or almost, anyway. Close enough. Don't worry, we're not sticklers for going by the book. Sometimes we forget there even is a book. <laughs> Why am I not surprised to hear that, Beatty? Did you take anything else, Nab? No. Would you tell me if you did? Right now? Yeah, T, I would. Plus, I usually don't lie. I might if I were better at it. Well, remind me to keep a closer eye on you whenever you're out with us. Speaking of which, uh, T, have you had anybody watching this house? No. Didn't think there was any reason to. Hmm. Just wondering. I flipped through the forms I'd found in Ham's drawer. One page had a phone number that Ham had apparently scribbled at its top. I got out my phone, dialed in the number on the form, and got directions from the woman on the other end. I hung up. Up for another stop tonight, T? Hmm, I think we can squeeze it in. Good. I think all of us might find it quite interesting. And so ends Episode 2 of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. The cast included Tom Fahey as Petey, Rick Sallow as Sergeant Hackett, and in a performance that would have put Rip Van Winkle to sleep for another 20 years, I, Michael McGee, played the part of Nab. The music used here was by artists like Jamie Sieber, Derek Krawcheck, Andrew Potterton, Lee Mattiford, Derek Sonderfan, Father Rock, Rob Vandenberg, Tyler Riggs, and Clouseau and were courtesy of websites like Magnatune, Jemendo, SoundSnap, Podsafe Audio, Internet Archive, and the Podshow Podsafe Network at podshow.com. Some of the tunes here, Japanese Sandman, Fate, and I'm Just Wild About Harry, date back to the year 1920 and 1921, and were performed by Paul Whiteman and his orchestra. Most of the sound effects here were courtesy of SoundSnap at soundsnap.com. A full rundown of the musicians and song or composition names can be found on the music page of the Theater of the Midnight Sun website at theaterofthemidnightsun.podbean.com. So that's it for this episode. Check back for episode three of Bluebirds and Dead Canaries. Or click that old subscribe button or follow us to be notified about the release of the next episode. Until then, this is Michael McGee saying, no need to wake Shakespeare or bother Mark Twain, and no use in worrying Broadway or even your local high school thespians. It's just us, the theater of the Midnight Sun. Thank you.